And we're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 340, a.k.a. Year 7, Week 38, uh, coming at you this week. As always, I am your host, Mr. Richie Rich, along with MC KS. And since we now do the show on Clubhouse, join us on Clubhouse. The club is the Anarchist Experience, or follow me at Riches for Rich, R-I-C-H-E-S, the number four, R-I-C-H, to get the little bing notification thing that we are going live uh, which again, for you who want to listen live at some point, is around 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time um, on Saturdays is when we like to try to record these things. So if you want to participate in the show and you you know want to know when to like get on Clubhouse, uh, that's about it. So what is going on with you guys this week? Um, no, I heard a whole bunch of news about El Salvador, and um, that's about it. <laughs> Well, specifically the the legalization of Bitcoin as the national currency for the company, right? Yeah. Which, which and actually, what so the story I heard was that they by by the law, uh, Bitcoin is legal tender and it's required for everybody that accepts uh, money for trade has to accept Bitcoin. And there was a big public outcry against that because for obvious reasons. Um, well, is it obvious? Like the Bitcoin those, people, well, those authoritarians telling telling you what currency you must use. That's that's like, you know, we don't like those those uh, those government people. So that's anyway, um, so in that in that way, it, it was it was wrong. It's wrong to force somebody to use a particular currency. Uh, it's it's right to say it, it's legal to use it, and you don't have to pay uh, tax when you're switching between uh, U.S. dollars and Bitcoin. So El Salvador is a, a dollarized uh, country. So for now, usually they, it's a Bitcoinerized country, right? Um, so they everybody's used to using dollars there, um, and I, I assume that they probably had you know similar laws like they have in the U.S. Like if you if you own Bitcoin, the Bitcoin goes up, and then you trade into dollars, and you have to report that and get taxed on it. Well, in El Salvador now, you don't have to do that. Now, Sounds like a good thing. I think El Salvador should also do that with gold and silver. So then you'd have a three way competition. Okay. Or, or or maybe make it like any currency is legal and you should just use whatever currency you want. You know? Well, okay. So I hear your point. I don't, I don't disagree with the sentiment, uh, but I also, I don't ever think you have to do that. Right. Like why do you have, why do you have to make any currency legal tender? Why not? You know, like if you want to well, trade in a specific currency, you're already allowed to. And from the government's perspective, if, if you know, if we, forgetting for a moment that you know we're anti-state and anti-government, um, you don't want to be open to accepting all of these currencies for payments for government things, right? So you have like the state currency, which if you're going to be doing business with the state, you use their currency, but in private transactions, use whatever you want, right? There's, I don't, I don't know if there's necessarily 
a law, legal tender or otherwise, that requires vendors or um, you know uh, or or service operators to take a specific currency. Um, you can trade in whatever you want. Can maybe in the U.S. Uh, what what does legal tender mean? Does that mean that uh, if I go to a Pizza Hut, they have to accept? Uh, dollars if I give them dollars or can they and can pizza, or can pizza hut say no we only take bitcoin is that is that legal as I understand it the only thing that the courts will enforce will be contracts in the legal tender right so so um, the legal tender says the for all debts that the only thing they'll accept in taxes so for all debts public and private is is how everyone understands the legal tender laws so the only way that you would you would force Pizza Hut to accept your legal tender, right, is if you incurred a debt first, right? Like if they brought you the pizza and you consumed the pizza and then you said like, ah, I don't have my Bitcoin to pay this bill, right? I would like mm-hmm. to settle this debt in dollars. They would then be forced to take the dollars. But if they said, oh, no, 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 we only accept Bitcoin and you must pay in advance, Right. Then you would have they, they would they would be de- uh, demanding what currency they take, and you would have to comply with that. Now, if you gave if you gave them the Bitcoin in advance and they didn't deliver the pizza, now they owe you a debt. They could say, "Well, we're going to settle this debt in dollars because that's what's legal." Yeah. Okay. So they can they can accept whatever they want. Uh, okay, but the other part of that is the the government is going to say there's there's going to be a capital gains tax on whatever. And so in El Salvador, there's no capital gains tax if you're holding Bitcoin versus dollars or or, or trading them back and forth. As it should be. Right. And so yeah. th- now the government should say, you know, any currency, right? And then, but at the moment, it's just Bitcoin and, and dollars. It's yeah. the only legal tender in El Salvador. Now, does that mean that they, every time they state any, um, like, for example, what you... What they say would you you owe in taxes? They'll say it. They'll cite it in dollars and in Bitcoin. Probably. In which case, those values could be. They, they might fluctuating. say. Yeah, they might say only Bitcoin, um, and those values might you know change daily. See, and, and that when they used to have a bimetal system in the U.S. that was gold and silver. Mm-hmm. In that time, uh, they set a fixed, legally authorized uh, uh, exchange rate between the silver and the and the gold. <laughs> Look how that worked out. <laughs> yeah. right. Well, it meant Gresham's Law took place. Um, since it was a fixed exchange rate, whatever was uh, cheapest replaced whatever was becoming more dear. Right. Uh, so, you know, one of those would just disappear because people would trade everything that they could. Um, right. They would hold on to the things that were more dear. Like, And it's my, understanding that, it's my understanding that Gresham's Law is only applicable uh, when you have a state mandated currency, when you have two state mandated currencies, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like right now, you know, cryptocurrency is big in New Hampshire. There's a handful of places, um, a lot of them out in Keene, New Hampshire, that will take cryptocurrency for payment of goods. It's like the restaurant that I go to Sunday night, um, I get the I get the hairy eyeball from uh, my compatriots because I still pay with a credit card. They're like, why would you do that? I go, man, because I get points on the card and I cash in the points for free video games. And that's, you know, more valuable to me than activism. Sorry. And I go, <laughs> and go, I just pay in fucking crypto. The place takes crypto, you pay in crypto. 
Um, <laughs> so, so I, I get, I get those looks, uh, frequently enough. Um, but anyway, so, you know, so the, the restaurant that we go to, they, they take your normal, uh, legal tender. They take cryptocurrencies, um, like, you know, Bitcoin cash dash. Um, I forget which other ones they take. Um, and, but now like we, we've moved on, we go, okay, we've got them, we've got them on the crypto bandwagon. Um, and then there's like a handful of people out there going like, now can we get them to take, uh, 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 goldbacks? And if you're not familiar with the goldbacks there, it's actual paper gold currency. And, and I'm using the term paper loosely. It's like, it's some sort of plastic fiber of some kind with the gold enameled onto it and another protective layer to make sure the gold doesn't like flake off. If I'm wrong on the details, feel free to correct me, but it's not important to the conversation. So there's a handful of us out there who like, you know, carry around these gold backs and use them to trade amongst ourselves. It's got the actual gold in it. Yeah. Or it's just redeemable in gold. No, no, no. It's got the actual gold. It's, it's beautiful. It started in Utah. Like when Utah uh, mandated that gold and silver were legal tender in Utah, um, this company popped up called, and they're just called Goldbacks. So for a while, there were Utah Goldbacks, and people in New Hampshire were like passing around Utah Goldbacks, and then at some point convinced this. I don't know how it happened, uh, but the the company that mints these things were convinced to make New Hampshire Goldbacks, and I think now they have Nevada Goldbacks as well. Um, you know, sp- they're they're all the same, but they have specific designs related to the state um, on these on these bills on these you know on these. Um, yeah, I don't know what those called these goldbacks, uh, but like a a goldback denominated in one, like one goldback, is one one thousandth of an ounce of gold enameled into the paper, mm. and then it goes up to like I think fifty or hundred. I don't know what the biggest one is, but because it's got more gold, right? And the the larger denominations are also bigger bills, so the one goldback is a much smaller bill. Then the hmm. fifty gold back, because the fifty gold back has fifty thousandths of an ounce of gold enameled into it in some form or fashion. And again, enamel is probably the wrong word. Look it up. Do your own research. I don't care. That's the word. Embedded. Sure, embedded. Well, yeah. I'm curious how. I mean, with the old gold coins, people could take it to an assayer and and have them actually uh, guarantee the quality or yep. as, uh, assess the quality of the the quantity of the gold in the coin. Yep. Um, uh, because they didn't, you know, trust it, and there were people who would sort of try to debase it and so on. Yep. Uh, how would you do that with this, the gold bag? I mean, that's a curious thing. Obviously, it depends on the trust that people have, the confidence that people have that it actually does have that gold in it. Right. So I'm going to say right now it's mostly based on trust. However, if you wanted to deface your gold back, uh, you can melt it down. And, you know, I don't know what the, the, the chemical methodology for doing that is, um, but if you melt it down and I guess burn away or boil away or however, you know, however smelters do that, um, the plastic and the enamel, uh, and the, you know, whatever other chemicals are in there to hold this thing together, you will be left with that amount of gold, like 50,000th of an ounce of gold will be sitting yeah. in your, in your cup after you've melted this thing down. And there's, there's also a little bit of value in all the work and technology that took to get the gold into that dollar. So. <laughs> right. Which, which is why, um, at face value, it trades significantly higher than the face value for an ounce of gold, mm. right? Like if 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 an if an ounce if an ounce of gold you know is like you know two thousand dollars say, 
right? The the equivalent ounce of this gold back is probably going to be in the five to six thousand dollar range. Mm-hmm. So there's a significant premium built into this process. This processing. Yeah, seems like a good thing. Yeah, and I I don't have a problem with it. But if you're you know if you're a gold collector, right, and you just want to stockpile gold, this is not for you. This is uh, a currency meant to be traded and uh, designed in such a way to make that to to facilitate that as easily as possible, right? It's a it's a thin piece of plastic with gold embedded into it somehow, chemically processed into the in, into the into the gold back itself, and it's beautiful. But yeah, we're trying, but we're trying to get the restaurant to take it, and the restaurant's like, "Well, I don't think so, not yet." And we're like, eh, you know, they're like, "Well, just start tipping the waiter, right? Tip the waiter your normal amount, give them an extra three bucks in a one, you know, in, in a one in a one gold back piece, and then see how they like it, right?" It, to, to me, the gold back has basically replaced the Liberty Dollar as far as its intended function, and I think that's a wonderful thing. Now, I suppose that it has remained immune to the prosecution that the Liberty Dollar hit because it looks so different than a dollar and it doesn't claim even to be a dollar. It claims, what, what what's it called, one gold back? Um, it's one one-thousandth of an ounce of gold. So, it's, it's, so there's no it's dollar harder. denomination on there at all. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. Um, that's right. Um, and it doesn't look at all like an attempt to replicate or imitate the, the dollar. Right. Aside from it being a rectangular piece of currency. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Looking at it right now, the pictures are all sort of, you know, old style um, pictures of, of women on the front. That should appeal to <laughs> some of the audience, too. Yeah. Uh, people using it. Um, yeah. Um, I would think it would be um, at a, a rate of, right now, they say average rate is uh, 373 yep. uh, for a dollar. And there's a there's a dude selling them for four bucks because it's an easier conversion, and he's got to get his little mini premium for providing the local service. Yeah, yeah. And At one a, point, there were three bucks. Like there was a dude, there was a dude in Manchester who was selling them for like three bucks a pop several years ago. Mm-hmm. So even that has increased in value in just a number of years. But the the point to this conversation is like the restaurant can choose right whether or not to take this currency. And, you know, we as the consumer are offering it to them because we want to see it circulate more like we do crypto. Um, and because, you know, the, we have the, the activists out there have a very good working relationship with the proprietor of this specific restaurant, um, you know, there's, there's, there's room for that negotiation, right? She said no for now, but who knows what will happen in the future if, if we keep, you know, if, if we keep pushing it. Well, if there's a lot of customers that, that want to use those, then it's to their advantage to do so. Right. Um, then the question they might have as well, okay, now I'm going to use these that I've collected to pay for the food that's been delivered to my restaurant. Um, well, the, maybe the, the food distributor won't accept it, but I'm sure they could find a me, uh, an intermediary, somebody who would be willing to convert it to, to dollars uh, so that they could buy the food or supplies that they needed. Right. So there's, again, as long as there's a market for it, then it's not really a problem at all. There's obvious uphill challenges, but when, when you introduce a new currency like this, right, this is kind of where the Liberty dollar got in trouble in its subversiveness, right? How do you convince the next level up to accept this thing now that you've got it, right? Bitcoin has the same challenges. All cryptocurrency had the same challenges, right? When it's, when it's new and we're the only ones using it and we go to someplace like, hey, bro, you should take Bitcoin. 
And the guy goes, why? Like, where can I spend it? And the answer is, well, hopefully here, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that's a tough sell. Um, but it takes, it takes time to make it widespread, right? And, you know, there's a, a small group of dedicated activists um, with, with, whose goal is the sole intention of spreading this thing. And it's going to be small unless more people join in. Right? How do you how do you convince the, the you know the food vendor to take it? Well, you got to convince a lot of restaurants to start taking. You make it, it legal tender, and you get the God force of the it. law. <laughs> yeah. God damn it! Now you just ruined the whole thing. <laughs> I know. And so the the rest of the story was that um, well, the the president got so much flack for uh, in El Salvador for uh, making making this law uh, that. He, he had to put out a tweet saying, oh, no, you don't actually have to uh, accept, like, you don't, everybody doesn't have to accept Bitcoin. That's, it, you know, even though it's in the law, that's not what he really meant. And so he's well, ruling by Twitter. Well, then why put it in the law? Yeah, I know, but. He's <laughs> walking it back. It's so funny because you, you could, you can, you can make a law and then you can just null and void it by Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and that's where we yeah. are in the, in the U.S. too, you know. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, see what the courts uh, say. Biden comes out and he's like, um, yeah, everybody's going to have to get a vaccine. It's like, what? <laughs> you can't do that. Look, the only thing I have to say about that is let's go, Brandon. <laughs> Are you familiar with this, Ken? Let's, yeah, let's go. Do you know go what let's go? Him. Do you know what let's go, Brandon means, Ken? It's, no. it's the alternate phrase for uh, F Joe Biden when they, when they're chanting and they have to say what's, uh, you know, the mainstream news has to say, you know, report the news, what's happening. And so they replace F. Joe Biden with let's go, Brandon. It's it's now a dog <laughs> whistle for F. Joe Biden. Now, I'll just say it. Fuck Joe Biden. I'll say it. You, uh, I think I don't think but Ken no, has but that it's, sense it's funnier, of news. It's funnier if you say let's go, Brandon. <laughs> right. Now it is. So this started, this uh, fuck Joe Biden chant somehow started at like sporting uh, events around the country, Right. There's a lull in the action, and then someone in the crowd starts a chant of "fuck Joe Biden," right? It's yeah, it's a beautiful okay. thing to to watch on video. Just you know, fifty thousand people in a football stadium going like "fuck Joe Biden," right? And so this dude named Brandon won a NASCAR race, and while they were interviewing him on live network television, an entire uh, racetrack, right, which is much bigger than an arena erupts into a, a fuck Joe Biden chant. And it's, you, you can see the nervousness on Brandon's face as he's trying to answer these interview questions with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people around the track chanting this thing. Right. And he's excited. He just won the race. This is not his fault. And in order to cover this up, right. The, the interviewer, this, this female uh, interviewer, Right goes, oh my, like, listen to the crowd. You can hear them chanting for you, let's go, Brandon. <laughs> and that was her cover. And, it, you know, like, technology has advanced where we, uh, you could hear very clearly what they were chanting. It's not like, you know, a VHS tape from the, from the 80s or 90s where, like, oh, the muffled noise in the crowd background. Like, it was, it was very clear, crystal clear what they were chanting. Um, and so now, let's go, Brandon, is a dog whistle for fuck Joe Biden. Right. So if you start to see, you know, they're, 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 they're starting to come out, right. Bumper stickers, t-shirts, flags all yeah, over the I place. I want the t-shirt. I, I kind of want the t-shirt too. <laughs> it's, 
it's it's a little too meme culture for me. Like I don't really wear that kind of t-shirts, but still, it's hilarious. <laughs> if you weren't if you weren't to wear KS. So yeah, so so Joe I, Biden. I did see a, a a kind of a cartoon saying uh, where he's commenting. Oh my gosh, uh, so many people love me so much. They they want to have sex with me. Yes. And the, yeah. The other person is saying that's not what Obama it means, Joe. That, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Right, and that that again, that's in uh, that's in reaction to the chants that have erupted around the country. Um, so they so so Joe Biden, you know, is doing his thing where he just makes announcements and decrees, um, but he's also a moron, right? And probably has dementia. Uh, a lot of people are suggesting that at this point, but to the point where you know he's he's came out on, um, in like one of his national speeches. Right. And basically said, like, we're mandating the vaccine, especially amongst healthcare workers, because we want you to be assured that when you go to the hospital to receive care, that you're not going to catch the, the COVID-19 virus from one of the workers. Right. Completely mm-hmm. oblivious to the fact that the vaccine doesn't stop the, the spread and transmission of the virus. Like he's making he's making these, these decrees f- from a place of utter ignorance. Mm. But he's the president, right? And most of the nurses that have been working the last couple of years have been already exposed to COVID-19. They would have to have been exposed. Um, How could you not after working right. you know, in the hospitals with all those cases? Filled so up that's those. the biggest issue to me is that you know people that have already had COVID-19 uh, have the antibodies. They are saying that they must get the vaccine. And, and that's it's the stupidest thing in the world. But... Um, you know, if you're if you don't have the vaccine, and you have never had COVID nineteen, uh, sh- still should you be forced to get it? It's like no, like if you get sick, obviously sh- you should go home. <laughs> that's a, that's about as far as it goes. Or not? I I I had it in April. I missed zero days of work. Now I don't work with uh, any well. Other you're co-workers. not a healthcare yeah. healthcare professional, but <laughs> that is true. I'm not. But I also like I don't have a lot of coworkers, and I don't have. Um, I don't interact with very many customers, so it wasn't it wasn't that big of a deal to me. Um, but I, I don't care. Like I, I was I was sick, but well enough to function at my job, and so I did. Um, let, All right, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, let's go back to El Salvador real quick because there was something that we discussed pre-show that I did want to get uh, KS's input on, um, and that was with it being legal tender. Uh, you had indicated, uh, MC, that because of that, they're going to go through periods of happiness uh, as Bitcoin is on the rise, uh, followed by a depression like every three months as the as the price dips. And I suggested, you know, and this is where I'm, I'm kind of looking for you for, for validation, Chaos, or correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I suggested that, that that would likely not be the case because theoretically, at least, in an unfettered free market, Right, the only thing that you would see in those cases are fluctuations on the prices of consumer goods and services to reflect the new value of Bitcoin on the global scale, right? And it and it could so you wouldn't have stable prices, you know, for milk and bread or you know massage services or whatever, whatever it happens to be, um, and that the 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 market would just fluctuate the prices based on the perceived value at the time, and so the free market would take care of the take take care of that and you wouldn't necessarily see a depression every three months you would just see fluctuating values um but because it's not a state mandated 
um, fiat currency that you would you would tend to see wealth increase overall because of of confidence in the currency. Chaos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I often think of um, you know the well the tragedy of the Great Depression uh, at the time when they they saw the deflation and and of course the the banks the debtors the government all viewed that as a as a horrible thing to be avoided at all costs and i've always thought that was really bizarre how is it that falling prices are a bad thing well, yeah my dollar goes farther why is it why is why are we in a bad situation all of a sudden exactly exactly and yet uh, all the central banks all the mainstream economists all the mainstream academics all the mainstream politicians do everything to avoid it. And I think that's because government is by far the biggest beneficiary of inflation and therefore the one hurt most by deflation, you know, because, yeah. um, yeah, um, for all those reasons. And, uh, so they argue or constantly in for in, but every inflation, every 1% of inflation is, is it just a continual robbery of, um, the value of low income people savers, pensioners, um, and a gain to uh, people holding on to property or gold or collectibles or government that gets to print the money and spend it first before the prices go up. Yeah. That's a, when I, when I was more, transfer wealth. when I was more economically ignorant, um, you know, I, I used to get the same stories as most people, you know, from the grandparents back in my day, candy only used to cost a nickel. And I go, yeah, well, Grandpa, back in your day, you only made a dollar an hour, so it made sense, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I kind of, I, I justified it in my head going like, well, I make significantly more than a dollar an hour, even, you know, minimum wage or whatever happens at the time. And so consumer prices kind of reflect that. Um, as, sure. I, as I've gotten more economically literate, right, I realized that the two don't necessarily pace at the same rate, Right. So yeah. candy has gone up in price much more significantly uh, than wages, right? And so his dollar an hour went way further, you know, than my seven, you know, or, or whatever minimum wage happens to be. Um, and, you know, that's when you get, you get introduced to the concepts of inflation and deflation, right? I go like, yeah, I'm, like I'm with you. I go, well, then why is deflation bad, right? If I can, if my, you know, Who's, who's trying to convince me that my dollar going further is, you know, bad for the economy on well, fucking rich people, right? Who are, who aren't, who aren't, uh, who aren't necessarily holding those dollars and their other assets are doing something else. Well, they, they argue that, well, if, if you see prices going down, people will stop buying as if, as if spending is the only factor in, yeah. in an economy, they'll stop buying because they'll, they'll estimate, oh, the price has gone down, it's going to go down more in the future. Well, you never see that happening in real life. Whenever prices go down, people buy more. That's the law of demand, that when prices go down, people buy more because they're richer. They're, and because they're richer, they get the product at a lower price, plus you have all the savings that you spend on other things. You're, you're richer every time. the price. If, if the price went down to zero, and we could get everything um, you know, for, for free, we, we wouldn't stop consuming because we'll say, oh, well, maybe it'll go negative. <laughs> ah, but, but in a post-scarcity world, chaos where that is possible, we would curb our consumption to just what we needed because there would be no reason to hoard at such lower prices and consumption would actually go down. If everything was free? Yeah. Uh, okay. 
Because <laughs> if you, I, okay, so like toilet paper, right? If you knew that you could always walk in the store and get a roll of toilet paper, right? There would be no reason to hoard it. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't unless, over Unless you think prices will go up someday. Well, but if it's, if the price is zero, right? If the price yeah, is zero, zero but, then I, I get a warehouse and get all the toilet paper eh. and wait till prices go up to a dollar. Goddamn capitalist. Rich. Of course you would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's always going to be a hoarder. Ruining the dream for all the commies out there. Well, because, so, because there are hoarders, prices will never be zero. I mean, that's so, yeah. Oh, I understand. And, and, and I don't think the price, I don't think that should be the goal is to get prices to zero. The price, the, the, the goal should be make is, you know, get things to where they're cheap enough for everybody to live a life of luxury. Sure. <laughs> so the, the other concept that I was, uh, I was reading about earlier this week as it relates to that was, um, I forget the term, but it was like, the, I'm going to say the double dip of inflationary, um, problems, right? So not, not only, um, not only do you see a rise in prices where, where you see um, inflationary policy, but what is unseen is the lowering of prices as technology advances, right? So as, as technology advances, especially in you know, a consumer electronic goods, right, typically prices go down, right? Like there, there's an 8K TV out there right now, like a 100-inch 8K TV, that's like $100,000, right? Someone's mm-hmm. going to buy that. Someone, some millionaires got that in, you know, in their living room somewhere. Um, but in several years, right, that could be a TV that you could walk into Walmart for and get for a few thousand, right? And then several years after that, it'll be in the budget bin for a few hundred. Uh, but right now, it's a hundred thousand. Um, so there's there's downward pressure on price as technology advances that you then don't see as inflation is is adjusted. You know, as inflation occurs and the price goes up. So that hundred thousand dollar TV that could end up being a hundred bucks in the bargain basement will never actually see that hundred dollar price because it'll get wiped out in inflation, and it still may be a hundred thousand dollars years from now because that's just the new purchasing power of the dollar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you you won't notice the full advantage of the the technology because uh, the pricing price price inflation will keep um, dampening that that effect. Yeah, but wouldn't it be marvelous? I mean, for the first hundred and 20 years of the country, uh, we had slight deflation over that whole period of time, which didn't mean that it, it, it meant, it didn't mean that they didn't, weren't making money. They were digging gold out of the ground and added gold to the, to the money supply, but they were adding productivity much greater. So the prices were still going down over 120 years. And that was our greatest growth period of, of all, except for these stupid wars, you know, that, where the deflation then was reversed during time of war, 1812 and Civil War and, and World War I. Um, but aside from those wars, which were government-generated uh, catastrophes of destruction of goods and services and lives, um, they had uh, um, an increase in value. So if you had a dollar today, 100 years from now, it, was, it would purchase more than a dollar's worth of stuff. Yep. which was fantastic for savers, a great incentive for saving. And then the great thing about saving is that it doesn't just go into the mattress. It uh, is loaned out to um, investors who find it cheaper and cheaper to invest, to borrow, to invest in other things. You know, um, Of course, yeah, debtors have this problem that if the value of the dollar goes up, it's a little bit harder for them to uh, to pay it back 
if the value of the dollar goes up, then their debt becomes a little more difficult too. But it's ironic to me that so much favor has gone to the debtor saying, oh, you don't want the debtor to have to worry about paying back in in dearer money. Uh, So we have to tolerate inflation. So the guy who actually was the creditor, the saver, uh, loses an enormous amount of wealth to tolerate this inflation. I mean, all the... All the sympathy has been on the side of the debtor rather than on the side of the creditor. Yeah, and w- but what you should see when that happens is uh, a reduction on the willingness of the creditor to to issue more credit. That's right. Why? Right? Why? Why would you? And I'll I'll have to charge a higher interest rate. And uh, yeah, but if you know that the the value is going to be stable, then you'll stabilize what you charge. You'll take into account who you're going to loan. I mean, still all the factors of. Um, Supply and demand and evaluation of credit and debt is going to be a part of their calculation what the interest rate is going to be. Yeah. So let's take this back to Venezuela for, uh, not Venezuela, excuse me, El Salvador for a moment. Um, with, with Bitcoin being the national currency um, and with what we know is fluctuations in the price of Bitcoin, I, I suggested that you would still see a rise in productivity and wealth regardless because they'll just, you know, affix prices um, as the as the price of Bitcoin fluctuates or as the value of Bitcoin fluctuates. But how do you think that would turn out for these uh, debtors and creditors who are then now able to take loans in Bitcoin or issue loans in Bitcoin um, playing off of these fluctuations? Is it still, is it still conceivable uh, to have a, a functional market with the prices fluctuating as dr- dramatically as they do? Yeah, I think so. I mean... Um, yeah, of course. And, and because it, it, it's either that or you don't have an exchange rate or you just have to accept whatever the, the, the falling value of your currency is, or you have a choice. A choice means you're going to choose something as a better alternative than what you've got. The only reason you'd choose it would be because it would be better off. You'd be better off with it. Okay. So you don't have to, you don't have to, um, well, of course, when they made it legal tender, then they made it uh, made it mandatory to do so. But if you have a freedom well, of choice, and you can even say, though it's legal tender, I don't think banks have to learn out Bitcoin. Pardon? I said even though it's legal tender, I don't think the uh, the El Salvadoran banks have to lend out Bitcoin, right? I mean, it's just it's like yeah. you can use it or not. But is there is there an incentive one way or the other to do so? Like, should they, with the current fluctuation, should people take out loans in Bitcoin, knowing that you know the value could spike? the next day and make it prohibitive for them to pay off their loan. Um, and con- and conversely would, you know, is there an incentive for banks to lend out Bitcoin knowing that the value could crash the very next day and they'll get, they're going to uh, get paid back in, in much less valued currency or well, do you the, need a stable banks currency? Are always that? doing that with, they have uh, adjustable rate mortgages or uh, loans and so on. And the, and the risk is always that the interest rate is going to soar. Um, and people do take those risks because their short-term gain from that is enough for them to say oh, it's worth it for me to take that that risk. Okay. So they make that evaluation on their own um, judgment of risk. So it'll still be on the banks and on the consumers to decide for themselves whether or not this is a good financial decision for them. Yeah. All right. Fair. That's all I got on that. Anything else? Nope. All right. Shall we do headlines? Headlines? Sure. Headlines. I don't have a lot today, but we, I still got a handful. Uh, headline, uh, the post-pandemic world is one of widespread dependence 
on government. A headline behind seemingly objective statistics. A headline you got lost and had to be rescued. Should you pay? A headline don't ask politicians to fix a supply chain supply chain crisis they created. A headline we need a free market and legal services. And finally, headline way too many people want an all-powerful president. Mm. Any of those jump out at you? All of them. (laughs) Pick one, and we'll get to as many as we can. I want an all-powerful president. You want an all-powerful? Sons of bitches. Okay. Because then the power is consolidated, and then uh, get rid of that one person, and um, you're you're free. (laughs) Ah, the the old Mexican solution. I, th- I, th- I think I just coined a term, and I'm going to keep using that. The, Mexi- the Mexican solution. What do you mean the Mexican solution? Solution. Now just kill the guy who's who's got all the power. Seems to work in Mexico. Well, I don't know. It, it seems that there have been more assassinations in this country than uh, assassinations in Mexico, haven't there? Maybe, maybe on, as many. Okay, you know, maybe maybe on the political side of things. But what I'm what I'm usually referring to when I say that is uh, we all know that the Mexican uh, drug cartels hold mm. a lot of power right in Mexico. Mm. And there have been a number of cases where, uh, there Mexico will have like a new police chief, right. Who's I'm going to crack down on the cartels. Right. And so they kill that guy and they kill his family and, you know, and they go like, okay, now we have a new police chief. And so the cartels kill that guy and his family. And then all of a sudden no one wants to be police chief anymore. Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. I go, oh, it's the Mexican solution, right? Polit- politicians trying to crack down on your free market business, ice them, right? And pretty soon, if you do that enough times, no one wants that position anymore because the risk is too great. Um, and I've said that a number of times uh, here and in, in private conversations and maybe on a small scale on Free Talk Live. Um, and that is my, be- my belief that the government officials need to understand that they have skin in their game, right? In the game. And so um, several, I don't know if I talked about this on here, several uh, weeks ago, I was at a, a, uh, a training course, training class. And one of the other students in the class um, was lamenting over the fact that these right-wing protesters uh, showing up to these rallies or whatever, carrying their AR strapped across their chest, right? Making a big show out of the fact that they have the guns. And his suggestion was that this is detrimental to the greater gun movement, the the greater gun freedom movement. Um, And that in order to gain our gun freedoms and and to regain some of our lost gun freedoms, that we ought not display ourselves in that manner because the politicians are less likely to give freedoms back to those folks. And therefore everyone else's gun freedoms are restricted. And my counterpoint to that was, no, 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 that's not what that's about, right? The, the mere fact that you're suggesting that politicians have to give back your gun freedoms, right, is already the problem. And by showing up to protests and rallies in full kit, right, what you are presenting to the politicians uh, is that your rights can no longer be taken, right, without a fight, right? The, the, the old come and take it uh, mentality, um, there's a, there's a, uh, an activist here who's got his own little hashtag. Um, and I was driving by, I was just driving home from work, uh, yesterday 
and I saw like a you know big old sine wave protest thing at one of the bigger intersections, and I have no idea what it was about, but I did see some of his signs, and I did see his hashtag, and went okay, so this is like one of our protests, or they were counter protesting whatever was going on, and the hashtag that he is like promoting is hashtag FAFO. You know what FAFO is? Um, anybody? Anybody? No. Fuck around and find out. <laughs> right. Like we, we are no, we were no longer just going to let you walk all over us and take our freedoms and liberties. This is like heels dug in boots on the ground. This is where we defend those liberties from further encroachment. And so my suggestion to, you know, to, the, to this, this, uh, gun guy was basically, yes, you know, the, 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 those in charge, those politicians who presume to have power over us need to understand, right? That we still have firearms and they can still wind up in the news or at the guillotine, right? Like pass enough bad shit, right? Try to, try to pull that Australian nonsense here. And if you fuck around, you will find out. And so my, that was my suggestion um, that they, that they need to know that their lives are also on the line, not just the lives of those they presume to rule over. Um, much like the Mexican solution, much like what MC said, uh, suggested earlier, which is, if you have one guy with all the power, right, you, you, you now have a head of the snake to cut off. You take out the one guy and you do that enough times and no one wants that position anymore. And then ipso facto, more freedom for you. Because no one guy with power means no one, no power over you. What, what the, the problem with the United, uh, the United States system is the presumed democratic aspect of it which is why there's so many politicians holding so much levels of power, right? And you get your city council, the mayor's office, the governor's office, the state house, the state Senate, the federal government, the, you know, all these federal bureaucrats and no one guy in charge, right? Which means you're going to take out the, you know, the entirety of the federal government. That's prohibitively difficult. It's just easier to vote your conscience every four years and let the chips fall where they lie. Um, whereas in other places, you take out the guy in charge and you have no problems after that. You just keep doing that until, you know, until freedom is established. But right now, way too many people want an all-powerful president. And I guess for different reasons, you, you agree, MC. Uh, by now, it's no secret that Americans have largely divided among, along political lines and really don't like the people in the opposing tribe. What's a work in progress, though, is the growing willingness to do something very dramatic about that mutual loathing so that a temporarily dominant faction can't be obstructed by its enemies. Increasingly, our countrymen contemplate a balkanized future in which newly formed statelets are led by woke or MAGA Caesars. It's a future worth averting through some solution that lets people run their own lives independent of their opponents, if that's all possible. Significant numbers of both Trump and Biden voters show a willingness to consider violating democratic tendencies and norms, if needed, to serve their priorities. The University of Virginia's Center for Politics reported last week in its latest poll, uh, roughly two in 10 Trump and Biden voters strongly agree it would be better if a president could take needed action without being constrained by Congress or courts. Uh, more than 40% of both groups at least somewhat agree. And roughly 4 in 10, 41% of Biden and half, 52% of Trump voters, at least somewhat agree that it's time to split the country, favoring red and blue states seceding from the union. These poll results 
aren't outliers, but part of an evolving trend. Last year, the, Democr- the Democracy Fund Voter Study Group noted that one-third, 33% of Americans have at some point in the last three years said that they think having a strong leader who doesn't have to bother with Congress or elections would be a good system of government. On a related note, in June of this year, Brightline Watch found that levels of expressed support for secession are arrestingly high, with 37% of respondents overall indicating willingness to secede. Within each region, the dominant partisan group is most supportive of secession. Among Republicans, the highest support for breaking up the country was found in the South at 66%. About 47% of the West Coast Democrats favored creating their own nation. Rather than support for secession diminishing over the past six months, as we expected, uh, it rose in every region and among nearly every partisan group, the researchers added. So, this involves more than frustrated politicians and pundits playing at the idea of installing a dictator or fracturing the country. Something close to half of the population think that these are intriguing ideas worth seriously considering. Resentment of the other tribe doesn't come without encouragement from above. It's worth emphasizing, President Joe Biden says, Republicans should get out of the way so they don't destroy America. That sounds much like his predecessor, President Donald Trump, who suggested that Democrats hate our country and can leave. Divisive jackassery is a shared characteristic that the political factions love exercising but resent in their opponents. Not everybody agrees that tribal animosity necessitates separation into separate states governed by a Caesar or otherwise. At Politico, Rich Lowry uh, reasonably points out that because Republicans and Democrats are separated more by county lines than by state borders, if there were to be a sovereign pure red and pure blue places, this wouldn't look like the relatively neat split of the United States into two separate, uh, into two in the 1860s, but more like post-peace of Westphalia Europe with hundreds of different entities. That raises a challenge to secession as a solution, but doesn't offer an alternative. Perhaps if we continue to battle for control of our common country, one side or the other might win a popular mandate to exercise real power and change the facts on the ground, breaking the perpetual stalemate, Ed Kilgore proposed uh, at New York Magazine, though his solution wouldn't seem to solve anything. The notion of popular mandate has never been anything more than a modernized divine right to rule, invoked by election winners uh, over the objection and resistance of those who see nothing of the sort. It's pure fantasy to think that one of today's antagonistic factions would suddenly surrender to the other. So a real solution would seem to involve letting people run their own lives out from under the thumb of enemies that three-quarters of both Democrats and Republicans, referring to the other side, described to the center of politics as a clear and present danger to the American way of life. If only there was a precedent for localized control, perhaps something called federalism? Unfortunately, as Rich Lowry emphasizes, the states aren't neatly divided between political factions. Instead, the divisions are closer to the county or community level, often pitting cities and suburbs against exurbs and rural areas. Decentralizing decision-making still makes sense, but it needs to go further than state capitals, closer to neighborhoods, families, and especially individuals. Democracies in sectarian societies often create institutional arrangements to protect the minority, like minority or group rights, power-sharing agreements, devolution or home rule. Uh, Nate Cohen notes in the New York Times in a May piece on America's rising political tension. 
While he didn't necessarily recommend that approach for the United States, he offered no other ideas beyond a hope that hostilities would eventually settle under the new administration. That hasn't happened. But even constitutionally sanctioned federalism tends to enjoy the support only of whoever is out of power in D.C. The dominant party there always asserts the the supremacy of federal power, at least for so long as it controls Congress and the White House. It's highly unlikely that the Biden administration or whoever wins in 2024 will voluntarily surrender authority to localities under some novel arrangement when it's traditional to bluster and chafe at state governments exercising the limited autonomy they were always intended to have. In Americans, if excuse me, if Americans then are going to get out from under the thumb of people they regard as enemies, they most likely will have to assert control over their lives without cooperation from further up the political food chain. There's precedent for that in state marijuana legalization, sanctuary cities, and Second Amendment sanctuaries, which assert the right of the state and localities to refrain from enforcing federal law. But to be effective, there needs to be more outright defiance by localities and individuals of unwelcome diktats from above. Isn't turning a deaf ear to the powers that be potentially illegal? Yes, it is. But defying commands from government officials who hate you isn't as big a break with formal protocols as is balkanizing the country or installing a Caesar. Rather than fighting each other for power, Americans would better advised to ignore each other and go about their lives. End of the article. Uh, so, so your thoughts uh, of the solutions provided, any of them stand a chance, preferable over the other? What do you, what do you guys think? Yeah, well, if, if the federal government would just get out of the way, um, then things would be a lot better. But uh, that's what happens when po- power consolidates and everybody wants the power, and, uh, and that's where we are. Yeah, and so yeah. they're not going to get out of the way. So what, what can be done? Anything? Well, I, well I'm nope. hoping for, for the, the whole secession thing. I don't care if it's by county or individual or uh, state or whatever. I just, I just want uh, everybody in every, at every level uh, to uh, give the finger to the next level up. KS? Yeah, I think it would be great if the if there was a a general uh, loss of of confidence in power. Yeah. And um and of course that's when people rebelled against the Soviet Union because they suddenly ha- I mean not suddenly but over a long period of time uh, the the mass um public opinion was was certainly opposed to all that power. But right now, I think people are saying, well, we want to get rid of those guys in power, but we want to still have our guy with all the power. That's right. what this division is between red and blue. And then I... I well, which is why it never goes away. Because they trade off power, and it reinstills confidence in that party that this is the right way to go about you know, political business. All right, finally, we've got the power back. No need to get rid of the power now that we have it. Right, And then they expand the powers, and then they lose it. And the other guy gets it, and they go like, ah, oh, he's got way too much power. we got to scale this back. And then he loses it, and they get it back, and so on and so forth. Right? It never, it never scales yeah. back because at each stage, uh, they're calling for more. And that's why secession isn't the solution for either of those groups because they're just going to establish a dictatorship in their own color section. You know, It doesn't, doesn't challenge the, the power at all. Well, they, we, we have a secession movement here in New Hampshire, and it's probably, I don't know the history of all secessions, um, but as far as like the modern ones are concerned, seems to have more traction than any other one in recent memory. 
um, because there, there's there's actual state representative here that proposed it, um, and it will go to the people, uh, I guess, uh, for a vote of some kind to, if they want to make that a constitutional amendment to secede from the United States. It's it's again, I'm not really political, but it's it's a beautiful piece of writing uh, to to see the plan, even though it's likely not to unfold. Um, one of my concerns with the secession movement here um, is that it will stop there, right? Like I, I want to see, you know, secession down to the individual level. Um, but I know from speaking with a handful of activists here that at least some of them believe that the state level is the proper size of government. I go, well, how you figure that? Well, and they go like, well, the state, if you can get away from the feds, right, then the state is in control. Um, but you don't want the counties to have too much power. And so you have the state government in place to regulate and restrict the amount of power that the individual counties would have. Uh, and some of the things, you know, that they'll point to um, is, is uh, more common in Massachusetts, I guess, Especially, like you know, as I get more into the firearms uh, topic and, and legalities, um, here it's pretty wide open. But in Massachusetts, firearms law vary like city to city, county by county, um, locality by locality. So what's legal, you know, in one part of Massachusetts may not be legal in another part, even though the state has their own um, guidelines and permit system, right? And so the fear is that, you know, if you if you bring that federated um, system to New Hampshire and local and, and secede and each county secedes from the state, right? Then it it would become prohibitive for individuals to cross the state um, without running afoul of some local county ordinance that they're not that, that they're no longer protected from at the state level. I go okay. Well, then you know, break it down even further. So, you know, have, if that happens, right? Let those let those individuals, you know, how those individual cities within the counties secede, right? And make even you know, and then just don't go there, right? Like, there's plenty of places in New Hampshire that I have not been and have no, no, I don't want to say desire, but no need to be. Um, and if those if those areas become one of them, right? Then I'll just find the long way around uh, to get to where I need to be if I need to do that at all. Like, why would you go there? You know, if you don't like the way the place is run, just don't go there, right? I don't go to mass because I don't want to go to mass. It's, it's a shithole. I, mean, I have no desire to be there as much as possible. Um, I, I like the idea of, of being free to move there because politics shouldn't, politics shouldn't be your only motive for whether you want to go to some place or another. I mean, there are a lot of other reasons to go be able to travel and move around it's yeah. not as tourists but as migration but massachusetts has better restaurants are, i will give them that there are other issues than um than um I, I i like for example i always thought that this problem that the u.s has is uh, this winner-take-all system where you it's impossible for an alternative to the democrats democrats and republicans have polarized around two autocratic um plans one to impose on the other um, in in both directions, but I think that alternative parties allow a different kind of voice, a platform, and and legitimacy for the you know so uh, so there's at least a libertarian out there voicing the opposition, like for example, so like a parliamentary in Germany, system. 
Yeah, parliamentary system. In Germany, they recently had an election. It was hardly divided between a lot of different points of view about what things should be, but I was really pleased to see the uh, FDP, the Federal uh, Free Democratic Party, um, do quite well. And that one is very libertarian in its in its um, thinking. It's always had a presence in the parliament there, maybe only you know five or six percent. Now it's uh, it increased a lot. And okay, yeah, there are other parties um, that get all the news, but they're still only with twenty five percent. That was the the winning party. Uh, the Social Democratic Party. And the second one was the Christian Democratic Party, which had been that of um, Angela Merkel for so many years, 16 years, and they dropped to something like 24%. Um, But they have to make a coalition with the other parties. And so very likely they're going to be making a coalition with uh, with the Free Democratic Party in order to get that party to join them so they can get this majority. They have to make certain concessions over... Um, you know, power of government. Maybe. So I'd say, I'd say it, it, it tremendously increases the leverage of of different points of view, and and one of those points of view is the libertarian view. It would be nice if if the libertarians in the United States weren't constantly dismissed as a party that can never do it, never win um, an election, which is you know is fine in, under this system, but it. Uh, would have some leverage as giving people an alternative to just blue and red. So I have posited in the, in, in the past and I have no real basis for this supposition. Um, but I think it's possible that the reason why, uh, Americans and a lot of other countries prefer the two party system is because at that point in time, you, you there's a clear majority winner. Right, fifty. If you only have two, you can have fifty percent plus one, and the historical narrative of Hitler rising to power with only thirty-three percent of the vote, right, uh, leads a lot to be desired as far as well. Did he really have a mandate to rule, right? And if you can get the power with only thirty-three percent, and that's what you can expect, um, then maybe we should only let people get that power who have a majority, you know, right, a quote-unquote right to rule. And so I, th- I think those two things combined lead people to uh, the two party system. Cause if you had a third party in there, they might, you know, like the, they, they play spoiler or they've only got a small percentage. Um, but then you have a dominant party that the, that most people don't want. Right. If, if whatever party uh, in Germany that, you know, the Angela Merkel or whoever's in charge now, right. Only had like 33% of the vote and that's what they won with or 25 even like only 25% of people want this guy, but now they're in charge, right? That means 75% people don't want them. No. What that means is that they have to form a coalition with other parties in order to have 51. They still have to have 51% um, to have control of the, of the parliament. Uh, So they get 25% of the vote but they have to make a coalition. They have to make concessions to other parties in order to get that. Now, Hitler had a completely different situation. There was, uh, you know, this uh, massive battle between the, the communists and the neo-Nazi, the, the, not neo-Nazis, but the Socialist Workers' Party, which was the Nazis. I mean, they were all socialists uh, of one variation or another. And it was this tremendous calamity, the, the economic uh, disintegration after World War One because of the reparations, because of the war, because of the reparations payments, because of the um, 
uh, horrendous economy, the trade barriers uh, going up um, from the United States and cutting off their trade, all kinds of things that were going on all around the world. And then um, uh, Hitler went to, um, uh, who was it, the guy that was the, um, uh, uh, was it Hindenburg that was the, was the chancellor at the time and said, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you the authority to, to form the government because uh, there's this bombing of the Reichstag, this, uh, all this fighting in the streets. Um, they gave him uh, authority and, well... The rest uh, is history? It was, yeah. <laughs> it was a, a horrendous situation, but yeah. very different than, than what Germany is experiencing right now. I think, that, uh, I think it, it gives much more likely a moderating... Uh, Tone because no party can do it on its own if it's just a minority party. It has to make a coalition sure. with the others. Hitler just didn't wasn't under that constraint. He was given the the power to dismiss everybody in government, put all of his own people in government with a a minority party. But he had the power of of um, expulsion of everybody from the media, from opposition. I mean, he, he exercised that to eliminate all of his opposition. Yeah with a minority vote um here here in well but it was it was still given that authority okay um uh, by uh, hindenburg right. you know, the, who was the chancellor here in new hampshire I mean, we, oh go ahead finish well you know i mean i I'd, I'd say it's a stretch to say that uh by allowing libertarians to to have a place in parliament that therefore you're going to have a rise of hitler it just doesn't follow uh, as far as i can see well, uh, and my suggestion is not that having libertarians in, but that people are wary of less than um, less than majority rule, because the historic example of a swift rise to power um, is one of less than majority rule, right? Actually, I'd probably have to say that most people today don't have the slightest idea about history. Anyway, they don't know how Hitler came to came to power in the first <laughs> okay. place. I, I and I would suggest that bolsters my point. Because what I see is less, I see a guy with 33% of the vote, right, taking complete control of the country and then other people going like, that doesn't seem right. If 67% people were, percent were against him, the person in charge ought to have at least 51% or 50% plus one, however you want to do the math. Um, well, in, in my view, we had the, the personality type of, of Trump already. And frankly, I, I, I don't think, I I always thought there were parallels between his personality type and the impulsiveness and, and uh, disregard for uh, populations and democracies um, that, that were, I thought, very similar to what Hitler and Mussolini were doing. And that's with already a majority of the party. A okay. majority of the vote. Actually, he never even had a majority of the vote. He had the electoral system um, um, giving him the power. So we've got, Interest, we've interesting. got perversions of it as well. Interesting, because again, one of the working narratives is that uh, Trump started no new wars, and because of all the um, all the media attention on Trump the man, right, he was not really focused on as a wartime president at all. Like wars were out of the news for the vast majority of the Trump presidency uh, presidency news cycle. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good good point. I like I like the fact that he was willing to have discussions with. Uh, and Kim Jong-un, for example, and stuff yeah. like that, something that other presidents... Yeah, no, uh, please don't mistake my thinking that, that, that the other guys were 
not also capable of Hitler-esque uh, type of actions. They they certainly were Bush and Obama by yeah. going into by Bush by going into these wars in Iraq and Iran, but they all. I mean, but Trump it's, Trump it, willing it, to negotiate with the quote unquote enemy seems very anti-Hitler behavior to me. Notice you, you, Trump didn't get out of the Afghan war until I mean it was scheduled to end after his first term in office. Yeah. He wasn't getting out of there either. I mean I I I don't attribute to, to him any peaceful motion uh, okay. a- actions either. Did he start any new wars? Like did he unilaterally bomb any new countries? Well, he unilaterally did bomb some people in, uh, you know, in in Iraq. Remember when that what Khashoggi? That uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I don't remember his name. There was a guy named uh, a guy who was leader of the Iranian uh, covert activities and so yeah. on that he bombed. And and uh, I mean, it could have been at the brink of war if there was. Um, uh, let's see. I think he he had some really bizarre activities in Iran, uh, in Syria, uh, that. Uh, but we were already in Syria, right? It's not like it's not like he sent new troops. I know, to but he a new didn't kick them out either. I mean, I, understood. I, I think I continuing got a war is still the same. But when you, when you compare it to Hitler, yeah. right? It's like an invasion of everyone surrounding him, right? And this you know winner take all, we're going to conquer the world mentality. Um, and like I'm I'm not a fan of Donald Trump, but that was that was not the narrative of his presidency at all. Whereas no, everyone else, that, you know, I don't think. Any American president has had the has had the the plan to conquer the world, but they do they they, they it's subtly part of their action because they yeah. they say well, they want regime change that's like us yeah. <laughs> with our oil companies and our corporations free hand wherever wherever they want to go. Even now, right? This I'm going to say the 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 good thing that Biden did of removing troops um, from Afghanistan, right? That that narrative will be marred in the history books by the sudden retakeover by the Taliban and all the bad stuff that they're doing, right? Yeah, so, and it's the same thing that the U.S. helped to happen in 1988 when the U.S. helped the the Mujahideen to defeat the Soviets. Right, but it will be it. it you know, it's like they, we from a libertarian perspective, I want to cheer Biden, right, for getting the troops out. But everyone else goes like, "Oh, that was a bad idea." Because now, look, the Taliban is back, and they're worse than ever. And so, even 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 being a peacetime, uh, war-ending presidency, uh, the narrative is that it caused more chaos in the region. Yeah, I, you know, it, it, and I think the presence was causing the chaos too. When you consider the massive amount of, of corruption, and I mean, I th- I think the the massive amounts of money that was spent and squandered in in afghanistan on very sure. corrupt uh, officials and all that that of course undermined and weakened uh uh any legitimacy of the of the government and yeah i mean i don't know it's 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 a mess probably there was no possible way of getting out without um some kind of catastrophe right um but, but i uh, still think getting out was a good idea view, it, yeah yeah i mean it was I mean, we always asked, well, I mean, you know, what would you have done to get out? And I said, well, I wouldn't have gotten in in the first place. And that yeah. the people keep forgetting that that's where it started. Um, yes, but we, we also and, have to, like, decide based on where we are now, right? Sunk cost being what it is, we're already in, now what? Be, mm-hmm. because, they, because someone, because a predecessor chose to get in, we are committed to a lifelong endeavor? No, you got you to gotta get out. 
And I would say that um, from my point of view, one much more decent way of getting out would have been to open up our arms to people from, not our weapons arms, but the... Yep. Um, the, the, the collective arms of, of the nation uh, of um, to to migration um, very early on, you know, yeah. uh, allow all those people who were expecting to be killed by the uh, by the Taliban to come here. I mean, we, it's one thing. Oh, we can send troops and trillions of dollars over there to to sort of prop up a government for them, but oh no, we don't want them actually here. We think we we care for them as people there, but not allowing them to yeah. become a part of the United States because they're not one of us. They're separate. They're those yeah. people over there. They deal with their own issues over there. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts? We are way over time. Final thoughts. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> All right. That'll do it for us. You guys know where to find us. Okay. Anarchistexperience.com. Uh, on Telegram, t.me slash anarchistexperience or t.me slash the anarchistexperience. Uh, join us once again on Clubhouse at uh, the, uh, well, at Riches for Rich, R-I-C-H-E-S, the number four, R-I-C-H. Or find the club, The Anarchist Experience. And if you would like to contribute to the show financially, you can do so through Patreon, patreon.com slash The Anarchist Experience. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. Peace. Aloha.